At any rate, uh, my name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here, so I'd like to welcome you. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back or underneath the seats. I believe there are some. And if you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot yours, you can borrow one. And we have sermon notes on all of the communion tables around the room. It has um, scriptures, the questions. And you can download an app on your smartphone called Uversion. Click on More, click on Events, and it'll bring up the notes as well. I need one of those fans that Beyonce has to blow my hair back, I think, during this. Uh, is there one? <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and get started. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. And it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and even though it's hot, and we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for being with us, Lord, and we thank you that truly you never change, and that you desire for your people to come to you and to cry out to you, expecting to receive from you, Lord. We thank you that you are good, that you never leave us or forsake us, and you never fail us. And so I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts this morning. Uh, you know where... We need to hear from you. And so we ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, uh, this is week 34 in our study of the first half of the book of Acts. And so far we've seen the early church witness the power of God moving in miraculous ways. On one occasion we saw 3,000 people come to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. On another occasion we saw 5,000 people get saved, and the church was marked by this manifest presence and power of God. And the Holy Spirit was working in such a way, we read in Acts chapter 2, that fear came upon every soul. And so God's power and His presence had produced a peace and harmony within the church. And the church was growing, and God was being glorified, and Jesus was being preached, and Jews and Gentiles alike were being saved. But we know that not everybody was pleased with so many Jews turning from Judaism to follow the way um, the church came under fierce attack from its enemies. And so Jewish leaders, they tried arresting the apostles, forbidding them to preach the gospel. But that didn't work. And they arrested Stephen, and they tried him, and they stoned him to death in an effort to stem the growth of the church. And they used hired guns like Saul of Tarsus. But we saw that God had other plans for Saul, and he was converted to faith in Christ, and he became the Apostle Paul. And so they persecuted the saints, and many of them were scattered as the church continued to grow and expand beyond Jerusalem, spreading out to Judea and Samaria. And we began to see the Gentiles reached last week. And so about 12 years have passed now since Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven. And last week we saw that at the end of chapter 11 that the church sent some prophets from Jerusalem down to Antioch. And one prophet named Agabus, he prophesied that there would be a great famine during this time. And this was during the reign of Claudius. And it's during this time around 44 AD that we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 12. So Claudius is still reigning in Rome and the full effect of the famine has yet to hit. But it's at this time that the king, Herod Agrippa, he sets out to lay hands on some who belong to the church. So we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
So the church here in Jerusalem by now has grown by many thousands of people. And they're already beginning to feel the hurt from this severe famine. And to add to this, now they're under this furious attack by Herod Agrippa. He takes James, who's the brother of John, and he beheads him with a sword. Now, like all of the other Herods who came before him, Herod Agrippa only cared about his own power. His grandfather was Herod the Great, who reigned during Jesus' birth. His grandmother was a Jewish, a Jewess named Miriam. And so he claimed this Jewish ancestry, and he used that to gain popularity with the Jews by persecuting the Christians. And so he moves up the ladder by buying and selling favors. And he finally got to this place of prominence in Judea, where he wanted to do everything he could to increase his favor with the Jews. And so he thought, well, the best way to do that was to go after and kill some of these leaders of the Jesus followers. And so James and his brother John, now if you remember, these are the sons of Zebedee back in the Gospels. James becomes the first martyr among the apostles. And his brother John, the apostle John, is the last apostle to die. And so the deaths of these two brothers, they form a parenthesis by which all of the other apostles lived and labored and eventually died. And even though this is the first time that his name is mentioned here in the book of Acts, it's clear that James was a very important leader in the church. Now, according to the Jewish Talmud, execution by the sword was to be used when somebody led people to worship other gods. And so what we see here is that Herod executes James according to the Talmudic law in order to gain favor with the Jewish leaders. Now, you might remember back in Matthew chapter 20 when James and John and their mother, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand when we come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, that's not for me to give. That's for the Father to give. It's not for me to give. And then Jesus asks a question, and he says, can you suffer the type of suffering that I am going to suffer with? And we see here that James indeed did suffer martyrdom and execution. And so Herod, seeing that James' death pleased the Jews, He proceeds to arrest Peter. He thinks, this is great. It worked once. It's going to work better the second time. Up the ladder, one more step to the most prominent. Peter was the key man. He's the most powerful preacher, the most dynamic apostle. He's a dominant force. And he could see nothing but gain from executing Peter. And so he arrests him. And it tells us that now these were the days of unleavened bread. That's the Passover. And that's important because in Jerusalem, there would have been many pilgrims. It would have been packed full. And Herod, he doesn't execute Peter immediately, but rather he wanted to wait till after the Passover activities had ended so that the people's full attention would be focused on this dramatic act. He wanted to get the biggest bang for his buck. And so in in verse 4 it says, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, we don't read here in this story that the church was terribly disturbed when James was taken captive. I would guess that they were praying for James. But there's no mention here of a prayer meeting. Maybe they thought that God would just rescue him like he did the other apostles when they were in prison. And an angel came at night and opened up the prison doors and let them out. But imagine for a minute this stunning, shattering effect when James is beheaded. And the sad news comes to the waiting church that the first of the apostles had been killed. It's very sobering, and the church is stunned here. And so now when Peter's taken captive, there's great concern. The the Christians knew what Herod intended to do to him. 
How could they face the future without their beloved Peter? And we see here that Herod appointed four squads to guard one man. Now, there are four soldiers in a squad, so there's 16 guards for one man. Why did he set such a close guard on Peter? Maybe he heard about the previous escape. But Peter himself, at times, would perform miracles in Jerusalem and elsewhere, sometimes demonstrating supernatural power. Herod wanted to be absolutely sure that there's no way that Peter could escape. And Luke here, he gives us all of this detail, I think, to make it absolutely clear that there's nothing that the church could do except for pray. And we'll see that this was their most powerful weapon. Herod failed to realize the power of prayer that the church wielded on behalf of Peter. And so we have this Herod. He's power-hungry, and he's going to fight against God, trying to destroy a leader of his church. Now, rulers throughout all of history and still today are dedicated to fighting God. If you remember back in Acts chapter 5, verse 39, Gamaliel, the teacher of the Jews, he was wise enough to know that this was a stupid idea. He said, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. But still satanically inspired leaders endeavor to do it, even today. Look at verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the church, they get on their knees, and they begin to pray for Peter. Now, James, Jesus' brother James, in James chapter 5, verse 16, he wrote, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Prayer becomes the key to God's storehouse here for opening up God's power in this situation. It says that they were praying earnestly. Literally, they were praying stretched out to the limit. It's a picture of stretching a muscle to its full capacity. It can mean fervent. It can mean unceasing. It can mean intense. It's a word that's used in the New Testament for intense love and intense service and intense prayer. They were stretched out in anguish and in earnestness, praying with total effort here for Peter. And while they were praying, God in his marvelous power was affecting his purpose. Let's look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So this is the night that he was going to be brought forward for some mock public trial, the next day to be executed. And I love the fact that it says Peter was sleeping. Now to a society that literally spends billions of dollars on sleeping pills, this is amazing. It's an amazing thing. The church was earnestly praying for Peter. And what's Peter doing? He's sound asleep. He's in perfect peace here. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. It wasn't something that he hadn't practiced before. It wasn't something that he didn't have experience with. He was sleeping chained to two soldiers, and he was guarded. And he knew that the Passover was over and what was about to come. And it never disturbed his rest. In verse 7, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. 
And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So this is kind of comical here. Peter is in such a deep sleep that the angel who suddenly appeared, he had to jab him in the side to wake him up. That's how sound he is sleeping. He finally rouses him and he says, get up. The chains fall off and the angel tells him to gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he does that and he wraps his cloak around him. Basically, he said, let's go. We're out of here. What are you waiting for? And so here's Peter, sleepy, bleary-eyed. He's groggy. He's staggering along after this shining angel with his clothes on, half-cocked. And he's thinking this was probably a dream or maybe a vision like he saw in Joppa. And then he gets up and he goes out following the angel, not knowing that this is really happening. He's in a total fog here. And you can see what he contributes to this situation. Basically, nothing. In verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, doesn't say how they did that, they just did. And they came before the iron gate leading into the city, which opened for them by itself. And he went out and along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. This strong, massive, outside main gate, it just opens on its own accord. And what we see here is that all of Herod's power was no contest for God. He burst open the gate with the breath of his mouth. He shattered those shackles. And the angel who had done his job ministering to the saints, like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, the angels do, he just disappears and he's gone. Now I think we need to pause and just remember and be reminded that no prison, no prison can hold a servant of God whom God wants free. No prison. You think about that. If you find yourself in a prison of sorts today, or you have a loved one who's in a prison of sorts today, whether it's spiritual or emotional or mental or even physical, sin and suffering, they have a way of enslaving us and holding us captive as prisoners. And Jesus died to set us captives free. And he is powerful enough to do that. And we have to remember that. Amen? Verse 11 When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter, when he finally comes to his senses, he instantly experienced the reality of his rescue, and he knew that God had performed a miracle. And he realized that his life was going to continue, and his ministry was going to continue for some time. And so Peter's second thought, after realizing this and giving praise to God, he wants to share his joy with his sisters and his brothers in Christ. And so he makes his way to the home of Barnabas' aunt, which is the mother of John Mark, and Peter... He's the answer to their prayers that they are still praying. He's on two feet. He runs through the narrow streets full of excitement. He probably had sheer delight of knowing that he was going to be the surprise answer to the prayers that were still being prayed at that moment. In verse 13, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and he went to another place. And so here's Peter. He's knocking on the door of the gate. 
Rhoda, the servant, comes to answer the door. And now Peter, he's out there. He wants to get into safety where the other believers are, where they often met. And you can understand that, right? He's standing outside, and he can be seen by people. And he doesn't want to hang around out there. And so we have this hilarious picture where Rhoda, she recognizes it's, P- it's Peter. And what does she do? She goes back in. She runs back in. She forgets about him. She leaves him out there. She wants to tell the others, Peter, he's here. He's the answer to our prayers. God answered our prayers. There he is. And what do they say? In their deep faith that God would really answer their prayer? You're nuts. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. I mean, are we supposed to believe that God really answers prayer? Are we? She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, many Jews believed in guardian angels that would at times resemble the humans that they were protecting. And so what we see here is that they're grasping on to this legend in order to accommodate their unbelief. Now, aren't you glad that God answers fervent but sometimes faithless faithless prayers? I know mine are often like that. Sometimes I have more zeal than I do faith. And Peter, he's out there in verse 16, and he's still knocking. This really is a comical picture. And When they open the gate and they see him, they're all amazed, and there's all this noise at the door. I mean, if Peter was in danger before, he's in more danger now because they're having this party once they realize what's going on. He's really out there. He's really out of prison, and he motions with his hand for them to be quiet. And then he goes on and he tells them the whole story of how the Lord rescued him from that prison. And when he's done, he says, go and tell James, Jesus' brother, and all the rest of the church what God has done. What a thrilling testimony of God's miraculous rescue, of answered prayer. Can you imagine James and the others sitting around listening to this story being told again? In the midst of this fearful and threatening persecution, Herod's already slaughtered their beloved James, and he wanted to slaughter Peter. And this is only the beginning of what he wanted to do and what they were expecting that he was going to do. And in the midst of all of this, they learn that God can deliver his own. That God is more powerful than Herod and all his walls, all of his prisons, all of his gates, all of his chains, all of his guards. And it says, And Peter departed, in verse 17, and he went to another place. Where did he go? Well, that's the point. We don't know. He went into hiding. He faded out. You see, Peter has been the main player in the book of Acts from chapters 1 through chapter 12. But now, from chapter 13 forward, it's going to be Paul. Peter's going to pop up again in chapter 15 briefly, but really his time is done here. His ministry in Jerusalem was nearly finished, and Peter's still around serving the church in Jerusalem as the Lord enables him. But his time is really up in the book of Acts, and a new and significant figure comes into play. And we're going to look at him in the future sometime whenever we get to the second half of the book of Acts, which we still don't know when that is, but someday. Verse 18, And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what became of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, and he ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Morning comes, they wake up, there's no Peter. They are really seriously distressed here. Later on in Acts, in chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer wakes up and he realizes that the prison doors are open and that the Apostle Paul may have escaped, he takes his sword and he's ready to kill himself. 
Why? Because he knows the penalty for losing a prisoner is death. And so you have these soldiers here, and they know what the penalty is, and panic sets in. And Herod, he conducts this speedy court-martial for these guys who are they're confused, and they're bewildered, and they're terrified, and he passes the death penalty on them, and he sends them off immediately to be executed. And then in utter disappointment, Herod here, he huffs off to Caesarea to soak in self-pity in the Mediterranean sun. And he was defeated. And he crawls away to some safe place where he can lick his wounds. What an amazing story of God's rescue, of God's deliverance. Now, there's a couple things that I want to look at in this story. And the first lesson here is very simple. It's very clear, and I hope we all get it. If you oppose God, you are going to lose. If you oppose God, you will lose. It is the same story throughout all of Scripture. Only a fool fights God because God's power cannot be contested. He is unstoppable. And so Herod here, inspired by Satan, like so many before him, like so many after him, who have clenched their fists and their teeth at God, trying to pit their will against him, it is always futile. In Proverbs 21 and verse 30, Solomon summed it up like this when he said, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. In other words, there is no way you can fight God and win. There may be a moment of triumph temporarily, or it may appear so from an earthly perspective, but ultimately it is eternal disaster. And so Herod and the rest of this world we see through history was filled with this desire to fight God, but they all end up the same way, like shattered shells of men and women who throw themselves against God, like throwing eggs against a granite cliff. They all eventually crumble. And they're nothing but straw men. And their kingdoms are paper kingdoms. And they're not only foolish because God's power can't be contested. Ultimately, God's punishment cannot be avoided. And we'll see that in the life of King Herod Agrippa next week when we get to that section. Now, not only is God's power unstoppable, but we have to remember that God and God's purposes are unchanging. They are unchanging. This is one of the attributes that God has revealed to us about himself in the scriptures, that he is immutable, that he is constant. In other words, that he never changes. In the Old Testament, book of Malachi, chapter 3, he writes, or he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And in Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your prayers have no end. And in Psalms 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And in the New Testament, James 1, 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And as we read at the beginning in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God doesn't change, and his purposes don't change. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I make this point here? It's because of the but in verse 5. You go back to verse 5. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
if God's purposes don't change, how do we explain the effect of the church's prayer, their earnest prayer here for Peter? Does prayer make a difference? Did it make a difference in the rescue of Peter? I believe that it did. I believe that's the whole point of this passage. And so we tend to focus on God's deliverance of Peter in response to the earnest prayer of the church. But oftentimes we ignore the non-deliverance of James, which resulted in his death. You see, Luke places these two events side by side, and it suggests the two ways in which God's sovereignty is expressed, by physical rescue and by no physical rescue. And both of those need to be considered when we think about God's help for us in times of trouble. Just as the disciples prayed earnestly for Peter's release, we too have the freedom. And moreover, we are actually called to pray for deliverance in our lives and in the lives of others around us. But we must leave it to God to let his sovereignty over the situation be expressed in the way that he sees fit. And more important than that, like both James and Peter here, we are to remain faithful and obedient to God regardless of what the outcome of our crisis is. That's the important thing. Now, as firm believers in God's sovereignty and the goodness of God, as hard as it might be, most of us understand that God will do what's best for us in our difficult circumstances. But I know for me, there's another danger here. And that danger lies in thinking that because our good and our sovereign God will do what he sees fit in every situation, that my prayers and my desires and my expectations are not crucial to the outcome, that they don't make a difference. And I think that may be why the church was surprised here, by God actually answering their prayers. And this is the tension here for me. Praying with expectation in light of the sovereign will and purpose of God. This is often where I fail, thinking that God will do what God will do, and I trust that he is good, and I often don't know what his will might be in a certain situation, so I will just accept what comes. And it may look more like faith than it really is. If I lower my expectations, if I lower my desires to see God do miracles in my life and in those around me, then I won't be disappointed when it doesn't happen. I can become lazy in my prayers rather than being earnest and passionate and expectant for God to respond as I hope. You see, the scriptures are very clear that our prayers do make a difference to God. Yes, he is unchanging, he's immutable, and his purposes remain the same. Yet, he responds to our will and he responds to our prayers. It's a paradox that we can't wrap our heads around how he accomplishes his will and his purpose through his people, through you and I, it's not always clear. We don't often know beforehand the circumstances that he's going to allow us to face in order to bring him glory and to grow us as his children. We do know he often uses trials and he uses difficulties in our lives to show his grace and his strength in our weakness. But we also know that Jesus clearly taught us to pray to our Father who loves us and to ask for his good gifts with an expectation to receive them. Now, as I said, it wasn't mentioned in this passage, but I believe the church was praying for James, too. And yet God allowed him to die for his faith. Why didn't God rescue him? 
Only God knows how this outcome fits into his sovereign purposes. But the point is that in this case, the prayers of the church were crucial to Peter's miraculous deliverance. God responded to their prayers within the context of his will and his purpose. Now let me ask you a question. Could God have accomplished his unchanging purposes for the church if Peter were executed the next day? Could he have done that? Of course he could have. Peter was okay with that. Peter was in perfect peace. He was okay with whatever outcome took place. Remember, he was sleeping soundly while the church was on their knees before God. And we see that God rescued Peter and allowed him to live as a direct result of the earnest prayers of his people. And so this is the paradox of prayer, that our unchanging and loving God responds to his people in order to fulfill his unchanging purpose. And what is this purpose? To demonstrate his glory and his grace through his son Jesus, who became to us a savior who delivers us. In Jesus, we have salvation from everything, from our self-destructive egotism to the mass destructions brought on by injustice and oppression. We have salvation for new life in this new creation that has been ushered into our broken world by Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. How does it all work? Well, first, it starts by aligning ourselves with the will of God, with God's unchanging will. The Greek word that's used for earnest prayer here in Acts 12 is the same word used in Luke in chapter 22, verses 42 through 44. Jesus praying to his Father. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in verse 44, and being in, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus agonized, making his will and his desires known to his Father. You see, this is not some meek and mindless submission to the power and the wisdom of the Almighty. It is boldly making our desires known to our Father who loves us. And it's only after Jesus wrestles all night long with his Father and he pleads for this cup of suffering to be removed that he discerns that it's not his Father's will to remove it. And so he accepts it obediently. And secondly, prayer is also the means by which we, you and I, fulfill one of God's unchanging purposes. And that is that we will be able to participate in, with our Creator in His work of creation. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And it says, And let them have dominion over the creation. We were created to participate with God in managing the creation and to be a part of welcoming in this new creation, the kingdom of God, in thought and in word and in deed. And in doing this, the neat thing is God has given us great latitude in which our prayers play a very crucial role. Now, like a loving father, God will not grant us every desire because clearly some of them are outside of his will but neither will he ignore our wishes as if they didn't make a difference, as if they don't matter. He gave us a will to use for his unchanging purpose, for us and for all of humankind. And in doing this, he grants many a request. And thirdly, God calls us to pray as the church, 
as a community of believers. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 12. Of the several thousands of people that would have been in the church at this time, how many do you think were at Mary's house? 40? 50? Sounds like they had a pretty big house. Maybe 60? This applies to our gospel communities as well. In Jesus' model prayer, he taught his disciples to pray collectively. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, the Apostle Paul, he writes this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, we cry, Abba, Father. We can't ignore the reality and the importance of our earnest communal prayers in accomplishing the purposes of God. So, how do we reconcile this amazing truth that our passionate prayers actually participate in the unchanging purposes of God? Especially when we're faced with difficult questions like, why didn't God heal the cancer of a loved one? Or why does he still allow social evils like sexual trafficking to continue? You see, it's a paradox that we will not be able to grasp until we wrestle honestly and earnestly with our Father and in his presence that reassures us of his goodness and of his character. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, he put it this way. He said, In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, and as well as to love and faith. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. You see, it's only in light of our assurance of God's character and in his desire for us to cry out to him for his will to be done that our prayers will have the intensity and they'll have the passion and they will have the confidence to ask of God expecting to receive. The band's going to come back up. And as they do, we're going to go to communion like we do every week. And we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And we take that cracker and we break it. And we dip it in the wine or the grape juice. And we were reminded of his blood that was shed for you and I to reconcile us back to the Father so that we can call God Abba, so that we could call him Father, and that we could have confidence knowing that God hears our prayers and that God cares about what we care about. He cares about our will and our desires. We're going to worship God as we uh, sing songs and we'll worship through our giving. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the back. And we'll worship God, hopefully through encouraging one another. And There'll be food in the back. And we hope that you would spend some time getting to know one another and encouraging one another and wiping the sweat off each other's brows. And especially, we're going to worship God through prayer. And there's going to be leaders in the back. And if you find yourself in a place today where you feel like you are a captive or you have a loved one that is captive, Go to them and, and pray. God wants us to bring our prayers of rescue to him and believe that God will do something about that and trust him for the outcome. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you that you have rescued us when we were helpless, when we were unable. You came to us, Lord, and you've delivered us, and you've rescued us. And you've reconciled us back to yourself through the precious blood of your Son so that we could be called your sons and daughters, so that we could come to you as Abba, as our dad, who loves us, who cares about what we're going through. We trust that you are good, that you know what's best. And yet at the same time, we know that you care about our prayers and you want to hear them and you want us to cry to you. So I pray, Father, that as you see the needs represented in this room, that you would help us even to cry, to groan, and to ask for deliverance, for healing, for rescue. Thank you for your grace, for your goodness. Thank you for loving us so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.